but welcome you. I have the honour of introducing Dr. Kathleen Rose. I know of no other face <coughs> or poet in our time who can throw any light on true poetry. I'm sure you, you must all recognise this too. So, I am anticipating a considerable enlightenment signal. And I consider it a great privilege to receive this enlightenment from a poet, a true poet. So I hand over to Kathleen. Thank you, Joseph. Well, I too feel it's extremely encouraging that so many people have come out on a horrible February evening to hear about Yeats, who is the greatest poet writing in the English language of this century, arguably equaled by Rilke and, as I believe by Tagore in India, but as I don't read the Bengali language, that must remain in doubt. But Yeats also greatly admired Tagore. Now what is generally called poetry, of course, isn't poetry at all. And uh, it's, it's sort of self-expression and so on. Uh, but this is, I am going to talk about two poems which you probably know very well, Sailing to Byzantium, and that, which was written in 1917, and Byzantium, written in 1930. And uh, Byzantium was a symbol which Yeats chose, as you will see, for a central symbol of what he conceived civilization to be. Well, my uh, paper is entitled Yeats's Holy City of Byzantium. Yeats's Holy City, not, not the city of Byzantium as such, of course. What is the city? The city is not to be found in nature. It is a uniquely human creation. Indeed, it is the uniquely human creation. For the city is the dwelling place humanity has created for itself. But that habitation is not the buildings alone, not mere housing, as in all too many modern building estates. The buildings of a true city are habitations of the mind and soul, as well as of the body. Architecture is more than building. It is an idea which informs the structure of bricks or stone. I.A. Richards, who loved Plato, called poetry the house of the soul, and a city is built not for the body alone, but for the soul. The city is the embodiment of the human kingdom of the imagination in all its four regions of the bodily senses, reason, feeling, and vision. And only when this fourfold nature of humanity is expressed and embodied can we feel ourselves to be its citizens in the full sense. 
The real city, one may say, is the invisible city, the archetype. A.K. Kumaraswamy, in an essay entitled What is Civilization, describes Plato's idea of a cosmic city of the world whose structure is the same as that of every individual soul, the same for functions or energies or castes, Plato writes, are to be found in the city and in each of its inhabitants. The law which governs the city is the same law which governs human nature. The principle of justice, therefore, is the same throughout, and that is that each member of the community should perform the task for which he is best fitted by nature. This, of course, is the original intent of India's long-enduring caste system, and more recently... C.G. Jung has redefined the four psychological types which he equates with the four living creatures of St. John's Apocalypse and many other examples of the same mandala structure from antiquity and from every part of the world. This archetypal city is a holy city, for as the heart is the living center of the body, so the heart of the city is a sacred temenos, church or temple or mosque, around which expands, as from a center, all the rich differentiation of a city's life in an orderly manner, the fourfold structure differentiating into a duodecimal zodiac of the tribes of men. And as the one sun lights the whole world, so the one divine self illuminates the invisible city within. The type of all cities of God is within Christendom St. John's New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. The city that is, is given by revelation, by inspiration to the soul, for the kingdom of heaven is within. St. John's city is a perfect cube and also a duodecimal city with three gates on each of its four walls. Comparable mandala structures can be found all over the world and it seems that this plan of the city is innate in the human imagination everywhere. The city of Jerusalem itself and its temple conform to this pattern in many essential respects. And the city of Byzantium was deliberately built as a holy city in conformity with the Christian archetype. It is arguable that our modern secular cities are not true cities since they do not conform to the innate pattern at whose heart is the temenos or sacred enclosure from which the life of the city naturally grows. Lawmaking and administration, all the skills and crafts, the learning and the arts producing whatever of use and beauty humankind needs and enjoys. In the absence of this pattern, we feel ourselves in exile. And yet, anywhere in the world, this natural structure will begin to form and differentiate itself in a division of labor according to knowledge and skills whose endless refinements have perhaps never so marvelously flourished as in Byzantium. So at least Yeats believed. 
The city of Constantinople was established on the older site of the Greek Byzantium by the Emperor Constantine in the year 352 and continued for more than a thousand years until its conquest under Constantine II by Mohammed II in 1453. Constantine was the first emperor to declare Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire and he built Byzantium as the first Christian city. Yeats's master, William Blake, had already made the holy city his theme in works that Yeats knew well, for he was the first editor of Blake's prophetic books. Blake's great mythological poem, Jerusalem, bears the name of the archetypal city itself. This eternal city was to be embodied in Blake's own city of London, Here on the banks of Thames we builded Jerusalem, Blake wrote, and was the work of those golden builders to be found in all cities in every time and place. Blake's poem is a great moral indictment of all that is contrary to the Holy Spirit in man, called by Blake by the Swedenborgian term the divine humanity and Jesus the imagination. Blake describes in great elaboration the fourfold structure of the city of Gorgonusa, the spiritual fourfold London eternal, ever building, ever decaying, desolate. <coughs> its builders are all those who practice the virtues of pity and compassion, love and kindness and mercy and devotion and thanksgiving. In many pages, he indicts the cruelty of the natural religion which denies the invisible kingdom and its master. Blake also describes the part played by the arts in building beautiful forms that the generating souls (coughs) can inhabit, the houses and gardens and fields of the imagination. Yeats would not have differed from Blake in these things, but was himself a poet, for whom wisdom and beauty, rather than Plato's justice and law, or Blake's mercy, pity, peace and love, were paramount. In the two poems in which he writes of his holy city of Byzantium, we are in a world very different (coughs) from Blake's Jerusalem, And yet, Yeats too pays homage to the same invisible master, for he chose Byzantium, a Christian city, as his symbol, although for the God within, Yeats does not use the name of Jesus, but rather the Platonic term, intellect. Yeats's holy city of Byzantium was not the city built by Constantine, which of course Yeats had never seen, though he had seen in Italy the Ravenna mosaics of the reign of Justinian. His two poems, Sailing to Byzantium, 1927, and Byzantium, 1930, take Byzantium as a symbol which enables the poet to make his own statement and his own contribution to that universal city of which Plato spoke. Sailing to Byzantium begins, you will remember, by saying what the city is not. 
It is not a part of nature, but that city of the imagination coming down from God out of heaven, discerned by the soul. Yeats's Byzantium is a vision of and a creation of the divine beauty. No poet has been more responsive to mortal beauty than was Yeats, and I remember the cold shock with which in my twenties I found the poet of the Lake Isle of Innisfree renouncing the beautiful natural world for monuments of unaging intellect, which at that time seemed to me abstract and life-denying. That is no country for old men. The young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. The salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh or fowl, commend all summer long whatever is begotten, born and dies. Caught in that sensual music, all neglect monuments of unaging intellect. But Yeats was no life-denying otherworldly ascetic, and in renouncing those dying generations at their song, he praises them. For what, then, is that renunciation made that the poet should see it as an order higher than nature? According to a Platonic fable in the laws, echoed by, by Plotinus, in youth, the soul is feeble and the body full of life, while, as the body ages, the soul grows younger towards its perfection. And this is the theme of the second stanza. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there singing school but studying monuments of its own magnificence. And therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. To the secular West, for whom the bodily life is all and death the end, where women cling to their fading beauty and men to their declining powers, an aged man is indeed a paltry thing, no better than a scarecrow, a tattered coat upon a stick. Therefore, Yeats crosses those mackerel-crowded seas to reach the holy city of Byzantium, city of the arts, there to study the soul's creation, monuments of its own magnificence. With that powerful word, he declares his own allegiance to another order than that of nature, the universe of soul, of which all art is an embodiment. In the absence of any real conviction that such an order exists at all, the centuries of Western materialism have clung to description of nature as the theme of art. Unlike spiritual civilizations of the past, for whom the invisible order of the soul's life has been the theme of poets and painters, Therefore, Yeats takes as his singing school that order of art which tells not of nature but of the soul's world. 
Blake too had declared that there is no natural religion and reproached Wordsworth, great poet as he was, saying Wordsworth must know that what he writes valuable is not to be found in nature. And he quotes Michelangelo's sonnet. Heaven-born, the soul a heavenward course must hold beyond the visible world. Her own magnificence lies within, and that magnificence is the image of the heavenly city. In a vision, Yeats sets forth his great unifying symbol of the phases of the moon. In the section on the movement of the great year of history, through those phases, he had already written his reasons for choosing Byzantium as symbol of the supreme moment of fulfillment in phase 15, when the moon is at the full and the world of the soul comes to perfection. This is a phase of complete beauty, he wrote. Now contemplation and desire, united into one, inhabit a world where every beloved image has bodily form, and every bodily form is loved. For more than a thousand years, Byzantium was the wonder of the world. Geographically and culturally, situated between the Mediterranean world of Europe and Egypt, it was open to the culture of Greece and Persia and in due course the empire of the caliphs trading with Russia, India and China. As Byzantium waxed, imperial Rome waned. Unrivaled in power and wealth, Byzantium contained in her days of glory some million citizens. Standing between the Eastern and the Western worlds, she imported rich silks from China, spices from India, her learning from Greece, her culture from Persia. Treasuries of art from the four quarters of the known world poured into her treasuries, while her churches, palaces, theatres, libraries, baths and stadium were the creation of her builders and craftsmen. The earlier church of Hagia Sophia was destroyed by fire in the reign of Justinian and Theodora, 6th century, who thereafter rebuilt in less than six years the great church of the Holy Wisdom, which Justinian proudly claimed surpassed the legendary temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Now a mosque, the rich mosaics of holy personages have gone, but the luster of marbles of various colors, jasper and porphyry and precious gems and metals which dazzled the eyes of barbarians from the distant lands of the Roman Empire, remain. Above all, the great dome, an architectural marvel, would then have been inlaid with those mosaic figures who seemed to stand in an optical space outside, not behind the surface on which they gleam. Yeats had himself seen the mosaics of Ravenna, likewise the work of Justinian and Theodora. The goddess of wisdom, in her Greek form, had long been worshipped as Pallas Athene when, Athena was, when Athens was the great city, and it was not to any of the Christian saints but 
to the, the holy wisdom that Byzantium's great church was dedicated. And it is the sages, not the saints of Byzantium, whom Yeats summons to be the singing masters of a poet who sought above all for the divine wisdom beyond any sect. Christians do not speak of sages, a word that refers rather to the Greek philosopher and, for Yeats himself, also to those of other traditions, those of India especially. O sages, standing in God's holy fire, as in the gold mosaic of a wall, come from that holy fire, purn in a gyre, and be the singing monsters of my soul. Consume my heart away, sick with desire and fastened to a dying animal, it knows not what it is, and gather me into the artifice of eternity. Yeats saw the works of the human Im imagination, the artifice of civilization, as a copy not of nature but of eternity, the timeless world of soul made according to the archetype on earth as it is in heaven, the task enjoined to humankind by the Lord Jesus himself. From that sacred wisdom, that unifying vision, flow all peripheral forms, as in the Irish holy books, themselves are flowering on the far margins of the civilized world, of the art of Byzantium, where the richness of golden lettering and the flowing design, where fish, flesh, or fowl disport themselves in the joy of life. In his essay on the phases of history in a vision entitled Dove or Swan, the dove of Christianity or the swan of Leda, from whose eggs came the Greek epic of Troy, Yeats gives his reasons for choosing Byzantium. At the moment when Byzantium became Byzantine and substituted for formal Roman magnificence with its glorification of physical power, and architect, an architecture that suggests the sacred city of the apocalypse of St. John. I think if I could be given a month of antiquity and leave to spend it where I chose, I would spend it in Byzantium, a little before Justinian opened Santa Sophia and closed the Academy of Plato. I think I could find in some little wine shop some philosopher worker in mosaic who could answer all my questions, the supernatural descending nearer to him than to Plotinus even. I think that in early Byzantium, maybe never before or since in recorded history, religious, aesthetic, and practical life were one. The architect and artificers, though not it may be poets for language had been the instrument of controversy and must have grown abstract, spoke to the multitude and the few alike. The painter, the mosaic worker, the worker in gold and silver, the illuminator of sacred books were almost impersonal, almost perhaps without the consciousness of individual design absorbed in their subject matter, and that the vision of a whole people. They could copy out of old gospel books those pictures that seemed as sacred of the text as the text, 
and yet weave all into a vast design, the work of many that seem the work of one, that make building, picture, pattern, metal work of rail and lamp, seem but a single image, and that vision, the proclamation of their invisible master, had the Greek nobility. And that creates is civilization, whose unity is not a political but an imaginative unity from that shared vision of the universal archetype. In such a city, all humankind know ourselves to be citizens. Unity of being, Yeats elsewhere writes, is not possible where there is not also unity of culture. Christian culture came to its perfection in Byzantium, but Yeats found that same unity, or sensed it from afar, in India. In a late essay, On the Boiler, he expresses his admiration for India's caste system, which had, he writes, saved Indian intellect. In his introduction to Tagore's Gitanjali, he writes that these poems display in their thought a world I have dreamed of all my life long, the work of a supreme culture. They yet appear as much the growth of the common soil as the grass and the rushes. A tradition whose poetry and religion are the same thing has passed through the centuries, gathering from learned and unlearned metaphor and emotion, and carried back again to the multitude the thought of the scholar and the noble. As the generations pass, travelers will hum them to Gore's verses on the highways and men rowing upon rivers, Lovers, while they await one another, shall find in murmuring them this love of God, a magic gulf, wherein their own more bitter passion may bathe and renew its youth. At every moment, the heart of this poet flows outward to those without derogation or condescension, for it has known that they will understand. And this, Yeats continues, is no longer the sanctity of the cell or the scourge, being but a lifting up, as it were, into greater intensity of the mood of the painter, painting the dust and the sunlight with an insidious sweetness. From the sages of the holy wisdom, we pass to the golden birds and the golden foliage of artifice in the emperor's palace, type surely of all those palaces of folklore whose splendor is described in all the fairy tales of the world, from the poorest crofts and cabins of Western Ireland to the dark winters of Norway and Russia to the story of Aladdin. For poetry is the house of the soul who inhabits all that fabulous magnificence. Once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enamelling to keep a drowsy emperor awake or set upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past and passing and to come. Here is Gibbon's description of the emperor's palace, 
which sounds more like a passage from one of the world's fairy tales than from a work of history. This is Gibbon, whom Yeats, by the way, bought Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire when he won the Nobel Prize. A throne resplendent with gold and gems was raised by a marble staircase to the height of a lofty terrace. Below the throne were seated the officers of his guards, the magistrates, the chiefs of the factions of the circus. The inferior steps were occupied by the people, and the place below was covered with troops of dancers, singers, and pantomimes. The square was surrounded by the Hall of Justice, the Arsenal, and the various offices of business and pleasure, and the Purple Chamber was named from the annual distribution of robes of scarlet and purple by the hand of the Empress herself. The long series of apartments was adapted to the seasons, and... adapted to the seasons and decorated with marble and porphyry, with painting, sculpture and mosaics, with a profusion of gold, silver and precious stones. His fanciful magnificence employed the skill and patience of such artists as the times could afford. And here Gibbon, who had little taste for works of the imagination and ranked generals and armies above philosophers and artists, cannot refrain from scorn. But the taste of Athens would have despised their frivolous but costly labours. A golden tree with its leaves and branches that sheltered a multitude of birds that warbled their artificial notes and two lions of massy gold and of natural size who looked and roared like their brothers in the forest. The Caliph of Baghdad possessed the like. A tree of gold and silver spreading into eighteen large branches on which and on the lesser boughs sat a variety of birds made of the same precious metals as well as the leaves of the tree while the machinery effected spontaneous motions the several birds warbled their natural harmony. Yeats saw Eastern Persian influence in those golden vines whose tendrils climb everywhere and display among their leaves all those strange images of bird and beast, those forms that represent no creature eye has ever seen, yet are begotten one upon another as if they were themselves living creatures. Yeats might have been describing a page from one of Ireland's holy books, themselves reflecting the Byzantine style. Well, Gibbon may have despised such things, but not so the worldwide anonymous imagination that builds invisible palaces. Perhaps it would be better if the poor of the world all received washing machines and television sets. But we should remember that the price would be the inestimable treasuries of the imagination. The rarest diamonds are, after all, only pebbles, and pearls the secretions of an injured mollusk. It is the magic, the enchantment of imagination alone, that creates all human splendor. As Yeats understood when he wrote his introduction to Lady Gregory's collection of gods and fighting men, a book of Irish myths and legends. 
Children play at being great and wonderful people, at the ambitions they will put away for one reason and another before they grow into ordinary men and women. Mankind as a whole had a like dream once. Everybody and nobody built up the dream bit by bit, and the storytellers are there to make us remember. Yeats knew in the west of Ireland such people, poor in goods but rich in stories, and writes, The poor fisher who has no possessions of the world and so no responsibility for it, and if he dreams of a love gift better than the brown shawl that seems too common for poetry, why should he not dream of a glove made of the skin of a bird, or shoes made from the skin of a fish, or a coat made from the glittering garment of the salmon? Homer himself found the great banquet on an earthen floor and under a broken roof. In the same foreword to Lady Gregory's book, he continues, I have read in a fabulous book that Adam had but to imagine a bird and it was born into life and that he created all things out of himself by nothing more important than an unflagging fancy. And whatever they do, the legendary people, whether they listen to the harp or follow an enchanter over the sea, they do it for the sake of joy. Now, the second poem is a much more difficult poem, as you no doubt realise, and if any of you want to go now, before we embark on it, please do so. <laughs> Byzantium, second poem. The Byzantium was written in 1930, three years later than sailing to Byzantium. It is a poem of magical power and beauty, but its meaning eludes the wish for explanation. And if I attempt to pursue a little further the meaning Yeats attached to the holier city of Byzantium, the Byzantium of his imagine, is his imagination, I may, well may go astray. It must be understood, however, that any attempt to interpret Yeats in the light of current Western materialist ideologies or history of ideas is doomed to failure. Throughout his life, Yeats entirely repudiated the materialist ideologies then and now prevailing and searched the available sources of an alternative cosmology both in literature and in the experimental work of magic and psychical research. Finally he came to a total commitment to Vedanta and at the end of his life was engaged in making translations of the principal Upanishads with his Indian teacher Sri Purohit Swami. India was the end of his search for a philosophy both coherent and profound, whose ground is not matter but mind or spirit, and which embraces all opposites within its non-duality. His total rejection of current Western ideologies brought him ridicule from his younger contemporaries. It is no longer possible to reject Yeats's thought as did George Orwell as hocus-pocus, or to say in the words of an American critic of the time that the supernatural has no part in our mental furniture. But that is not to say that his thought is better understood. 
Avoidance of the subject of those things which occupied Yeats's studies throughout his life is usually in, usual in academic discussions, unaware of the richness of the background of excluded knowledge on which Yeats was able to draw. From seeing him as a poet whose ideas were behind the time, lumber of the past, as the young Marxists of the 30s believed, we must see him as in advance of his time, prophetic perhaps of a change already to beginning to be experienced in the West of a search to rediscover spiritual knowledge, a quest which brought Yeats to the treasury of Indian wisdom as it has brought many engaged in this same quest. But Yeats's elaborate symbol of the Gaius, received by him through the mediumship of his wife George, is grounded entirely in the Western tradition of pre-Socratic philosophers and Plato himself. In a letter written shortly before his death, he summarizes that symbol. To me, all things are made of the conflict of two states of consciousness, beings or persons, which die each other's life, live each other's death. That is true of life and death themselves. Two cones or whirls, the apex of each in the other's base. This symbol he attributes to Empedocles, who describes a perpetual alternation of concord and discord, and writes, Never will boundless time be emptied of that pair, and they prevail in turn as the circle comes round, and pass away before each other, and increase in their appointed turn. And Yeats comments, I recall that love and war come from the eggs of leader, and he quotes Heraclitus, whose thought dominates all, and who writes that mortals are immortals, and immortals, mortals, <coughs> dying each other's life, living each other's death. Although Yeats does not mention Plato's source of the symbol, it is unlikely that he did not also know Plato's parable in the Politicus of the alternations of the Golden Age and the Iron Age and the spiral revolutions of time. Plato writes, divinity himself sometimes conducts this universe in its progression and convolves it, but at another time he remits the reins of government when the periods of the universe have received a convenient measure of time, but the world is spontaneously led around to things contrary. The, the Gaias move in contrary directions, one increasing as the other diminishes. Yeats plots in his chart 28 phases of the moon, and at phase one, all is dark, the ascendancy of the earthborn race, the Kali Yuga. While at phase 15, the soul reaches its full beauty with the full moon, and both these faces are out of nature, the one in darkness and the other in light. In Byzantium, the poem takes up the theme of sailing to Byzantium, but this time, less from the standpoint of the glory of the city of the 15th phase, <clears throat> the city of the soul, than as seen from the other world, the perspective not of the living, but of the immortals whose death we live as they die our life. 
The great dome of Hagia Sophia we see not from within where the sages stand in their holy fire on the mosaic walls, but in the light or darkness of that greater dome, the night sky. In the earlier poem, the poet had prayed to be freed from his mortal self, sick with desire and fastened to a dying animal. And now, as it seems, come the moment of reversal, comes the moment of reversal of life and death as the images of day receive, recede and the night sky opens. The unpurged images of day recede. The emperor's drunken soldiery are abed. Night resonance recedes, night walker's song, after great cathedral gong, a starlit or a moonlit dome disdains all that man is, all mere complexities, the fury and the mire of human veins. In sailing to Byzantium, the sages are summoned to come from the holy fire of God, Fire is the highest of the four elements, earth being the physical world, water the emotional element, air the intellectual, and fire the element of spirit, and to pern in a gyre, the gyre of history. Now the pern is a honey buzzard, a hawk, the bird already described in an earlier poem, the second coming, turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, and the rest. I'm sure many of you know the poem by heart. It's the poem that speaks to our time. The falcon turns in the widening spiral of its flight, and the pern, in sailing to Byzantium, calls out the same image, except that the name of the bird, the pern, becomes a verb, to pern, a form used nowhere else in English literature but in Yeats's poem. In a still earlier poem, Shepherd and Goat Herd, the pern becomes the spiral itself, Writing of the death of Major Robert Gregory, Yeats uses the symbol of the gyre as a spindle on which the thread of life is wound. This thread of fate is unwound in death, in the dreaming back of the discarnate soul, remembering its earthly life in the reverse order. He grows younger every second, jaunting, journeying to his own day spring. He unpacks the loaded pern of all twas joy or pain to learn. The loaded pern is equivalent to Plato's spindle in his bargain. Who talks of Plato's spindle? Who set it whirling round? Eternity may dwindle, time is unwound. Again, eternity dwindles as the living travel their thread, wound by the fate of Lachesis, from the distaff of Clotho to be cut by the shear of Atropos. The process, so Yeats believed, is, refers, is reversed in death. The image in Shepherd and Goat Herd of the soul who grows younger every second echoes again Plato's Politicus, there may be other versions, in which Plato describes how the Iron Age men pass as now from birth to death, in the Golden Age from age to youth, or rather as the body ages the soul grows younger. 
Yeats develops this theme in his elaborate symbol of the dreaming back, in which the discarnate relive their lives in reverse order, as here Major Robert Gregory moves backward to his day spring. In the second stanza of Byzantium, this image recurs in the unmistakable context of the dreaming back of the dead. Before me floats an image, man or shade, shade more than man, more image than a shade, for Hades' bobbin bound in mummy cloth may unwind the winding path. A mouth that has no moisture and no breath, breathless mouths may summon. I hail the superhuman. I call it death in life and life in death. We live their death, die their life. For who knows whether to live be not to die and to die to live. Plato, Euripides, the Platonic tradition as a whole re-echoes these words. To Yeats, this teacher was fundamental to his understanding of the incarnate and discarnate states of the soul. Yeats is indeed saturated with this tradition, known to him from both Plato, Plotinus, and the pre-Socratics. Plato in the Phaedo makes Socrates say that true philosophers make dying their profession because the philosopher will never attain to wisdom worthy of the name elsewhere than in the next world. Only death frees the soul from the contact with the body and its desires, which obscures the soul's innate wisdom. And in Blood and the Moon, Yeats summarizes Plato when he writes, For wisdom is the property of the dead, a something incompatible with life, and power, like everything that has the stain of blood, a property of the living. But no stain can come upon the visage of the moon when it has looked in glory from a cloud. Yeats is here again speaking the fifteenth phase, the full moon of superhuman perfection, and one remembers Shelley's line in Adonais, Adonais, die if thou wouldst be where thou desirest to be. Who then is the awesome image that floats before the poem? From a passage in Yeats's last work, The Death of Cahalan, it might seem that the image is himself. There floats out there the shape that I shall take when I am dead, my soul's first shape, a soft, feathery shape. And is it not a strange shape for the soul of a great fighting man? For a lifetime, Yeats had speculated on the discarnate life of the soul, and in a vision writes that religion cannot answer the atheist, and philosophy talks about a first cause or a final purpose when we would know what we were a little before conception, what we shall be a little after burial. Becomes Hades' bobbin bound in mummy cloth, for the symbol of the reversal of the gyres is here applied not to history, but to the alternation of life and death. Hades and the mummy cloth tell us no less. 
Another possibility I venture to suggest, but very tentatively, since the poem is entitled Byzantium, it seems to me likely that the symbols would allude to the iconography of that city and what more central to the civilization of Christendom than Christ on the cross. Since the central teaching of Christianity is that Christ conquered death, that he descended into hell and returned, what symbol more apt to float before the poet as an emblem of the ruler of the two kingdoms of the living and the dead? The icon of Christ on the cross is both man and shade, at once in life and in death and also more image than a shade become, because less a historical than an imaginative reality. Now, it so happened that I found, by sheer chance, only yesterday, a passage which I hadn't, hadn't included in this nature, in which Yeats uh, states his own uh, homage to Christianity. It's from uh, a general introduction for, to my, for my work, written in 1937, quite near the end of Yeats's life. And it seems to me to confirm this suggestion that the image is that of, of Christ on the cross. He writes, a Christ posed against a background, a background of Druidism, not shut off in, the de in, in dead history, but flowing concrete and phenomenal. That is Yeats's Christ. I was born into this faith, have lived in it, and shall die in it. The, my Christ, my Christ, legitimate as I, is, is a legitimate as I think, is that unity of being Dante compared to a perfectly proportioned human body, Blake's imagination, what the Upanishads have named the self, and he believes that this, uh, my Christ, is a legitimate deduction from the creed of St. Patrick. And this is, as it were, Yeats's own declaration of faith Blake, of course, said all religions are one and identified Jesus with the imagination. This is what uh, Yeats is here referring to. So, <clears throat> for all the fact that Yeats was a student of, above all of Vedanta at the end of his life, that did not, for him, exclude Christianity. And the icon of the Christos has power for us, not because it commemorates a historical event, but because it is a vision of eternal reality. So at least it would have seemed to Yeats, to, who chose that Byzantine art where around a bare cross all the rest is bird and beast and trees, and we may discover an Asiatic art dear to those he thought Christ, who thought Christ contained nothing human. A poem on the theme of Byzantium can scarcely disregard the inner universe, the sacred dimension of the city. What indeed can be said of a city or a civilization that excludes that other world? A secular city confined to the needs and activities of the dying animal would not have been called by Yeats a holy city. I'm sorry I read that so badly. It's my own handwriting in pencil.
But I hope you, you, you got the point of Yeats's, Yeats's Christ being conformable to the creed of St. Patrick. And of course, as an Irishman, this was the, uh, what he would refer to. And those of you who heard John Carey's splendid lectures about the Celtic other world will pick up those resonances also. The third stanza returns to the theme of art that first appeared in Sailing to Byzantium. Again we have those golden birds, but with two new themes introduced, the themes of miracle and Hades, the other world. Miracle, bird, or golden handiwork. More miracle than bird or handiwork. Planted on the starlit golden bough, can like the cocks of Hades crow, or by the moon embittered scorn aloud, common bird and petal, and all complexities of mire and blood. The poet is here speaking of something beyond either living bird or metal bird, that is, miracle. The work of art is more miracle than bird or handiwork. Gibbon observed that Byzantine civilization replaced reason, which had ruled the classical world, with a faith in the miraculous, that is, in the continual possibility or reality of divine intervention in earthly events. Gibbon scorns whatever does not conform to rational thought, not so Yeats, who, like Blake before him, held imagination above reason. This century is familiar with the reality of an unconscious or a superconscious self and knows that the reach of imagination goes far beyond rational, conscious thought. In the section of his autobiographies entitled Hodos Chameleontos, The Way of the Chameleon, Yeats has declared his belief in revelation. I know now that revelation is from the self, but from that age-long memory itself that shapes the elaborate shell of the mollusk and the child in the womb that teaches the birds to make their nest and that genius is a crisis that joins that buried self for certain moments to our trivial daily mind. Blake would have called that divine inspirer Jesus the imagination. Yeats understood it in the symbol of the miraculous 15th phase of the moon which unites the two worlds. Those beings of the inner worlds of the mundus imaginalis are the breathless mouths of the gods, the divine moods that inhabit the human mind. They are the she of the Irish other world. And when the moon's full, those creatures of the full are met on the waste hills by countrymen who shudder and hurry by. In a vision, Yeats writes of this change from the Roman to the Byzantine civilization in terms of sculpture. He noted that the Greeks painted the eyes of marble statues, marble statues, but the Roman was the first to drill a round hole to represent the pupil, and because I think of a preoccupation with the glance, characteristic of a civilization in its final phase. But the Byzantine vision was no representation of a living world, but the dream of a somnambulist. 
Even the drilled pupil of the eye, when the drill is in the hand of some Byzantine worker in ivory, undergoes a somnambulistic change, for its deep shadow among the faint lines of the tablet, its mechanical circle where all else is rhythmical and flowing, gives to saint or angel a look of some great bird staring at miracle. It is in Byzantium that for the first time in the West a civilization of the inner worlds, of the mundus imagination, has come into being. You see how wonderfully Yeats conceals his sources, the some great bird staring at miracle. He never mentions Gibbon, but it's Gibbon he got it from, this thing of the Byzantine preoccupation with the miraculous. And, and the difference between Yeats and Eliot, or one difference between Yeats and Eliot, there are many others, is that whereas Yeats gives footnotes and references to all the things like Jesse Weston and, and uh, Measure for Measure and so on, Yeats very carefully conceals them so that it all flows so naturally, and yet when you look into Yeats, you find how immense his learning was. It is in Byzantium that for the first time in the West a civilization of the inner worlds has come into being and the passage continues, could any visionary of those days passing through the church named with so untheological a grace the holy wisdom, can even a vision of today wandering among the mosaics of Rome and Sicily fail to recognize some one magic image seen under his closed eyelids? To me it seems that he, who among the first Christian communities was little but a ghostly exorcist, had by his ascent to a full divinity made possible this sinking in upon supernatural splendor, these walls with their little glimmering cubes of blue and green and gold. Artifice is not mere skill, it is miracle, and that miracle is the revelation of a vision of the supernatural splendor of the inner worlds of the human imagination that every holy city seeks to embody. The soul of the earthly splendor of Byzantium was the vision of the Christos. The song of the golden birds has become the crow of the cocks of Hades, a voice of the other world. It proclaimed that awesome wisdom which is the property of the dead and scorns all complexities of mire and blood, of that mortal heart Yeats had dedicated to be consumed away in God's holy fire as Dante stepped into the flames of purgatory. In the stanzas that follows, the poet evokes in the exalted language of an initiate the power of the imagination to summon from the imaginal world the miraculous fire. At that magical moment, midnight, which unites the sleeping and the waking mind, the world of the human and the superhuman, of the blood-begotten spirits of the living and the spirits of flame begotten of flame, the breathless Mars of the spirits of the other world. At midnight, on the emperor's pavement flit, flames that no faggot feeds, nor steel has lit, nor storm disturbs, flame begotten of flame, 
where blood begotten spirits come and all complexities of fury leave dying into a, tr a dance an agony of trance an agony of flame that cannot singe a sleeve here the poet transports us into the mundus imaginalis itself that inner universe of poetry and dreams that all forms of magic and enchantment sing to bring into consciousness rites and ceremonies yeats himself as a member of the magical of a magical order had performed and experienced here we irresistibly think of the emperor of Byzantium, not as Constantine or Justinian, but of the emperor, the tarot key, which Yeats must have used in magical ceremonies of evocation of that inner world. It is on the pavement of this world that the blood-begotten spirits of incarnate humanity meet the immortal moods in the fire of inspiration, which is at once a death of the trivial daily mind of the mortal self and an agony of flame as mortality is consumed away. Yeats had written in an early essay appended to the second volume of Lady Gregory's Visions and Beliefs of that interworld, which is the region of the cells and of apparitions of the fairy folk to the country people of Western Ireland, as it is the theme of the Japanese no theatre, and Yeats describes the ghost character of Motomezuka, who has but to lay her hand upon a pillar to make it burst into flame. She was perpetually burning. Japanese drama takes place in that interworld whose flames cannot singe a sleeve on our yet realities of the imaginable world, imaginal world. A clue to this dance between mortals and immortals is to be found in an early story, Rosa Alchemica, based no doubt upon Yeats's experience of magical work. In this story, Yeats points out the independent reality of our, of our thoughts, which are nevertheless the divine powers he calls the moods. Shapes barely out of existence, folding up into a timeless ecstasy, drifting with half-shut eyes into a sleepy stillness. The bodiless souls who descend into these forms were what men called the moods and worked all great changes in the world. In this way, all the great events were accomplished, a mood, a divinity, or a demon, first descending like a faint sigh into men's minds, and then changing their thoughts and their actions, and empires moved their borders as though they were but drifts of leaves. Here, there is a clear echo of Blake's description of the timeless moment of inspiration in his poem Milton. For in this period the poet's work is done and all the great events of time stand forth and are conceived in such a period within a moment, a pulsation of the artery. There follows a magical dance between mortals and immortals. For a moment the narrator seemed to be a mask which many persons with eyes so bright and still that I knew them for more than human came and tried me on their faces. For the poet is only the mask which the immortal moods put on or off for their drama. Then, 
I opened the door and found myself in a marvellous passage along whose sides were many divinities wrought in a mosaic, not less beautiful than the baptistry at Ravenna, but of a less severe beauty. Here Yeats is describing the character of his own imaginative world of which the mosaics of Byzantium are the nearest approximation. Then a voice cried out, Is the work of the incorruptible fire at an end? And immediately Michael Robartes replied, The perfect gold has come from the Athenor. Thus we may conclude that the flames that no faggot feeds of Byzantium are by implication the furnaces of the alchemical transmutation in whose agony the base metal of mortality is transmuted into alchemical gold. In the dance that followed, and in which the narrator is now qualified to take part, every mortal foot danced by the white foot of an immortal. I was dancing with an immortal woman who had black lilies in her hair, and her dreaming gesture seemed laden with a wisdom more profound than is the darkness between star and star. In Byzantium, the poet has condensed his early romantic fantasy into eight lines of magical power. The last stanza introduces two new symbols, the dolphin and the smithies of the emperor. A straddle on the dolphin's mire and blood, spirit after spirit. The smithies break the flood, the golden smithies of the emperor. Marble of the dancing floor break bitter furies, marbles of the dancing floor break bitter furies of complexity. Those images that yet fresh images beget, that dolphin torn, that gong-tormented sea. The dolphin, often found on Greco-Roman sarcophagi, is that vehicle which carries the souls of the dead to the other world and generating souls to this world. In a later poem, news from the Delphic Oracle, the dolphins are the vehicles of the dead, straddling each a dolphin's back and steadied by a fin. Those innocents relive their death, their wounds open again. The ecstatic waters laugh because their cries are sweet and strange. Through their ancestral patterns dance and the brute dolphins plunge until in some cliff-sheltered bay where wades the choir of love, proffering its sacred laurel crowns, proffering its sacred laurel crowns. They pitch their burdens off. The emperor of Byzantium, or the Taro emperor of the world, must have had his smithies where the hammered gold and gold enameling was wrought, so that the invisible archetype be made visible. And we again think of Blake's furnaces of loss, the spirit who kept the divine vision, where some sons of loss surround the passions with porches of iron and silver, creating form and beauty around the dark regions of sorrow, giving to airy nothing a name and a habitation delightful with bonds to the infinite, putting off the indefinite into most holy forms of thought, such is the power of inspiration. 
They labor incessant with many tears and afflictions, creating the beautiful house for the piteous sufferer. Others' cabinets richly fabricate with gold and ivory for doubts and fears, unformed and wretched and melancholy. So in the smithies of imagined Byzantium, as in Blake's furnaces of loss, those works of beauty are created, without which there is only the many-headed foam. Yeats admonished his own nation, the Irish. It was for the sages standing round God's holy fire in Byzantium that Yeats summoned to travel the guise of history and to be his teachers, for Byzantium was a city of the arts. Yeats's master, William Blake, had written that the arts of imagination, poetry, painting, music, the three powers of man in man of conversing with paradise, which the flood did not sweep away, and wrote of the laborers in the furnaces of loss, the time spirit, with bounds to the infinite, putting off the indefinite, the sea of time and space. And so Yeats in the statues sets art against chaos furnaces against, uh, against the, the sea. We Irish born into that ancient sect but thrown upon this filthy modern tide and by its formless spawning fury wrecked climb to our proper dark that we may trace the lineaments of a plummet measured face. The vision of all great cities comes from that fertile darkness for who can distinguish darkness from the soul? Beauty is not a decoration of material wealth, but the source, the soul of every true civilization. And without that vision of beauty, civilizations perish. Such was Yeats's reflection on the theme of civilization, on the theme of that universal city of which Plato dreamed, the city coming down out of heaven from God of St. John's Apocalypse. The, the human city must have a soul, an inspiring vision, or it will be mere building, all will be chaos again, the bitter furies of complexity that are held in check by the smithies of the emperor, the marbles of the dancing floor, where mortals meet immortal spirit, spirits, those images that yet fresh images beget. The soul of the earthly splendor of Byzantium was the Christian vision, the invisible master of miracle. By attempting to place some of Yeats's great resonance symbols in their context, I hope I may have suggested something of the great imaginative scope of his poetic thought to which I would only wish to add that however great the resonance of his symbolic images, these are always firmly rooted in earthly reality, even that great harmonic line, that dolphin torn, that gong tormented sea. Just as the great cathedral gong of Hagia Sophia tormented the waters of the Sea of Marmara, so, Mrs. Yates told me, the fishermen of the west of Ireland attract fish to their nets by beating a sheet of iron 
a gong, whose vibrations attract the shoals of their mackerel crowded seas. However the resonance of a symbolic image may travel in, into the superhuman and the miraculous regions of imagination, every great poet respects the law of correspondence which in every great work unites the sensible image and the invisible worlds it evokes and manifests. Thank you. Condensed many themes into a short space. The unpurged images of day recede. The emperor's drunken soldiery are abed. This, you see, is a sort of double thing. It can be the Taro emperor. It can be Constantine. It can be Justinian. This is the this is the greatness of, of great poetry. It. it Words don't just mean one thing, they resonate. So, the unpurged images of day recede, the emperor's drunken soldiery are abed. Night resonance recedes, night walker's song after great cathedral gong, a starlit or a moonlit dome disdains all that man is, all mere complexities, the fury and the mire of human veins. Before me floats an image, man or shade, shade more than man, more image than a shade. For Hades, bobbin bound in mummy cloth, may unwind the winding path. A mouth that has no moisture and no breath, breathless mouths may summon. I hail the superhuman, I call it death in life and life in death. Miracle bird or golden handiwork, more miracle than bird or handiwork, planted on the starlit golden bough, can like the cocks of Hades crow, or by the moon embittered scorn aloud in glory of changeless metal, common bird or petal, and all complexities of mire and blood. At midnight on the emperor's pavement flit, flames that no faggot feeds, nor steel has lit, nor storm disturbs. Flame begotten of flame, where blood begotten spirits come, and all complexities of fury leave, dying into a dance, an agony of trance, an agony of flame that cannot singe a sleeve. 
Astraddle on the dolphin's mire and blood, spirit after spirit. The smithies break the flood, the golden smithies of the emperor. Marbles of the dancing floor break bitter furies of complexity, those images that yet fresh images beget, that dolphin torn, that gong-tormented sea.